Good evening, everyone. Welcome to RUF. So glad you're here tonight. Uh, my name is Lewis Lovett. I'm the campus minister here. You, you may not have seen me the past few weeks. On the February 10th, we had our fourth daughter, Betsy, was born. And uh, yeah, we are very thankful for that. She and Maggie are both doing well. You will not, you will not see her on this campus this flu season. But I uh, hope you get a chance to meet her soon. We're excited about her joining uh, our family in this community. So anyways, thanks for all the well wishes and messages and prayers uh, for us. Uh, past few weeks, we really, really appreciate it. It means a lot to us. Uh, I'm also really glad you guys got a chance to hear from my good friend Joe Slater uh, the week before uh, Feb break. Uh, what, just a wonderful guy, really kind of him to, to step in. He was actually scheduled to come and preach tonight because we thought we were going to have just had our baby, and he was able to switch it around last minute uh, just out of the kindness of his heart. So grateful for him and glad you got a chance to uh, hear from him. He is a good and godly man. So we're going to be jumping back into Philippians tonight. And continuing our conversation on joy. Joy, this uh, feeling, this experience of fullness and satisfaction and exhilaration and peace that we are made for. Because God is a God of joy and which we spend our lives searching for. Uh, We talked, if you remember, this was three weeks ago now. We we studied this famous passage from Philippians 2. uh, Talking about Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. To have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of man. He humbled himself. That we model our life after that in order to experience joy. And so we're going to continue uh, in the next section of Philippians 2 tonight, talking about how, as counterintuitive as it sounds, we actually experience joy as we participate in obedience to God and his word. So if you have your Bible or your handout or a device, if you could have Philippians 2, 12 to 18, it would be wonderful if you had that text in front of you as we read together. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 12 to 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. He gives it to us because he loves us. Pray with me, please. Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of this night. I pray that you would be with us as we're adjusting back to life on campus. It picks up so quickly with... Uh, no on-ramp after Feb break. Please be close to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd be at work through this word right now so that we might love you more and love each other. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably know the Olympics just ended. I love the Olympics. I'm actually, I like the Winter Olympics more than the summer. Any Winter Olympics people? I'm two. Jonathan, Thomas and Jonathan. Okay. Thank you, guys. Yeah, I had to look. It's okay. You're Thomas Joyner. I know who you are. Okay, anyways. Um, we'll, just, we'll just keep going. We'll just continue. We'll just move on. I, lo- I love the Winter Olympics. And I-, and I think I love them because of like how fast things are. 
I, I love watching the alpine skiing. They're like flying down a mountain at 80 miles per hour, like on the very edge of control. And like 40% of the best people in the world like still wipe out. I think that's awesome. Not that they wipe out, obviously. But it's just incredible. I love the speed skating. And I love anything on the track. I love like the bobsled and the luge and the skeleton. I think that's the most crazy thing I've ever seen in my life, that people will do that. Head first down an ice chute at 100 miles an hour. Like, you wouldn't pay me to do that, but I love watching it. And, and, I, and I love the sense that there are these uh, random countries and random groups of people that make the Olympics. Like there was a women's Nigerian bobsled team this year. Like that's awesome. Like you would not think there's a lot of bobsledding in Nigeria. Like that's not a winter mountain sport country, right? Uh, and, and you guys are all probably familiar with the famous Jamaican bobsled team. I, I, I don't know much about the actual history of the Jamaican bobsled team, but I did grow up with the 1993 classic film Cool Runnings, which you should definitely check out. I'm pretty sure it's on Netflix now. Uh, it's kind of done its 20 years on TBS at this point. So uh, in, in Cool Runnings, you've got these, these uh, Jamaican sprinters, some of the fastest guys on the planet, and uh, they... They sort of trip each other during the Olympic trials. And these three guys, at least two of them are probably supposed to make the Olympic team as sprinters in a 100-yard dash. They don't make it. And so they get their other friend along with them, and they decide that they are going to start a bobsled team. And, like, the idea is that they'll have the fastest start because they're faster than everybody else in the world, right? They're, they're Jamaican sprinters. And so they convince to, to coach them John Candy, who they find washed up and half drunk in this bar in Jamaica – and John Candy is himself a former Olympian. And it uh, turns out, you find out as the story goes along that he actually won a gold medal uh, 20 years before in the Olympics. He, he had dreamed his whole life of winning an Olympic gold medal. He had worked for it his whole life. He had sacrificed everything he had for it his whole life. And he finally, he finally got it. But, but you find out that the reason he won is that he hid weights in the nose of the sled to make it heavier so that it would go faster. And he was convicted of cheating, and his medals were stripped from him. And he you know, lives the next 20 years basically in isolation, uh, rejected in misery, shame, and regret. He, he believed this lie, just like you do and just like I do, that the way to joy in this life is to do what we want, to get what we want. Like we think that if we do what we want and we get what we want, it will actually lead us to, to happiness. And we, and we do this, this plays out in our lives uh, all the time, right? Like that's why you watch one more Netflix show instead of studying or go to bed. That's why you sleep 20 extra minutes in the morning instead of getting up and going for a run. That's why you have a third or a fourth or a fifth or a sixth drink so that you'll have that feeling that everyone around you seems to be having of happiness. Like, that's, that's why we do those things. We actually believe this lie that if we do what we want to get what we want, we'll have joy. And, and so often we find that when we do what we want to get what we want, we actually experience shame and regret and heartbreak and loneliness. It, it doesn't actually work. And so tonight as we look at Philippians, we're going to see that there's this other way, this radical way of thinking about how the decisions we make in our lives could actually lead to joy. And it's through obedience. It's through obedience to God's word. Now, obedience is not a very uh, fun word to talk about. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word obedience. And now I'm a, I'm a dad. I, when, I hear, when I hear the word obedience, I think about 
like a, a father, let's say a 33-year-old guy, you know, gained a few balding, screaming at his kids, threatening them that they will be punished if they don't do what he says and they are forced to obey. Like that's what I think of. Or I think of like some oppressive totalitarian dictatorship uh, government military officer like forcing someone to obey a command in the streets. Like I think of all negative things when I hear the word obedience. But when it comes to our relationship with our Heavenly Father, obedience is very different because, of course, he's not a screaming, threatening, angry person. He's good. He loves us. He cares about us. He wants us to experience the fullness of joy. And so our relationship to him of obedience is actually different than anything else we experience in the world. That's why Paul, at the end of this, basically says... Like, even if by obeying God, I am poured out, meaning even if I die, I will rejoice and be glad, and you should be glad too. Because I'm following my Father who loves me. And, and, and so what we're going to do is we're going to look at what does it mean? What does the Bible mean when it says obey? This passage starts with, as you have often done, obey. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see three aspects of obedience tonight. First, obedience is communal. Second, obedience is responsive. And third, obedience is declarative. It's communal, it's responsive, and it's declarative. So, so first, obedience is communal. And we're going to start by looking at this often confusing uh, thing in verse 12. that says this. I'm, I'm going to read it to you uh, one more time. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, meaning even if I'm not there, keep doing this. And this is what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I want to try to get a little bit at the core of what's going on in this verse. Because here's what it sounds like Paul is saying to me at first glance. It sounds like he's saying, hey, you, individual person, you need to work hard if you want to be saved. That's what it sounds like to me at first glance. I think Paul is saying the opposite of that. Okay, I'm going to try to convince you why. Uh, the first thing is that the you work out your salvation is, is plural. Like in the Greek, that word work out, it's a second person plural verb. It's you all, y'all work out your salvation. So it's not an individual thing. It's not about you and you and you and you and you. It's about us as a group, as a community. Okay, that's the first thing. And, and the second thing is that uh, it cannot possibly mean that we need to work to earn our salvation. Because what does it say in the next verse? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Like in the same sentence, we are explicitly told that the beginning and the end of our salvation, the work that is done in us and through us that pleases God, is a product not of anything we do, but is a product of what God does. So when Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling... He says that you need to, to not, as an individual, try to figure this thing out a little harder. He, he's saying that I want you to take what is true of you as a community, that you are beloved by God, that he has died for you, that he sends his presence to be with you in power, and I want you to apply that to your life as a community of people. How does that truth work itself out in your community? And so that's the question we're starting with tonight. What would that look like for us, for you, and your friends in this room on this campus to apply your salvation, to apply the good news of God's love for you in Christ to your life in this community. 
a, a Christian community, and I'm, I don't imagine everyone in here tonight is a Christian, but a Christian community is one where the community itself is marked by this good news of God's love. It's what shapes us. It's what defines us. And so what I want to do is I want to suggest three things that we might do to try to work this out in our community. Okay, Three ways we might apply this truth of God's love for us in communal obedience to him. Okay, the, Here's the first thing. I think it's a call for us to be quick to repent and to extend forgiveness to one another. To be quick to repent and extend forgiveness to each other. I, in my own life, this is definitely true. I, I believe that the best relationships, the best friendships, are ones where people have had to confront each other and have had to apologize to each other. And, and I am convinced that for us to be a community that honors the gospel, we have got to make the words, I'm sorry, a central part of what it means to relate to each other. We have got to build that into our vocabulary in an even stronger way. And it takes courage to do this. Both to say, I'm sorry, and to say, hey, I need you to say you're sorry. It takes courage to tell someone, hey, when you said that, when you sent that Snapchat, when you invited those people and not me, whenever this thing happened... That really hurt me. And I just want to talk about it because I care about our friendship a lot. It takes a lot of courage. And it takes a lot of humility to hear that and not freak out and not get angry and not get defensive, which is, of course, what we'll probably do, right? We have to be quick to repent and to extend forgiveness because that is the gospel, right? The, the second thing, of course, this is connected to it. Uh, we have to keep each other accountable, so when you see your friends walking in darkness, walking in disobedience, walking in sin, do you care about them enough to call them out? Do you care about them enough to call them out to say, hey, what are you doing? Why are you dating that person? You know you shouldn't. If you say, hey, I, I love you too much to let what you're doing in this area of your life go unchecked. Can we talk about this? I'm a little worried about you and I want to help. I we talked about this last semester. I, I feel like I keep saying this again and again. We, we don't need friends who accept us for who we are. We need friends who care about us enough to help us grow in godliness. That's what we need. Again, this takes a great, a great deal of delicacy, gentleness, of grace, and of humility. Because, of course, the, in the Bible, is very, Jesus himself is very clear on this. When we hold someone else accountable, we are never talking to them as someone who has their life put together talking to someone who is broken. Never. We talk to them as someone who is broken talking to someone else who is broken. We come to them as ourselves, people who need to be held accountable, as ourselves, people who have sin and struggle and brokenness, who ourselves are giving in temptations. Always, right? That's why it's important to have the kind of friendship where you give each other explicit permission to do this. We really need this. Or else we will be walking in the darkness. Uh, the last thing is this, we're to be quick to repent, extend forgiveness, to keep each other accountable. And the last thing is, is simply to, enc- to encourage one another, to build each other up, to say to, to say to someone, hey, I see you, I see you fighting the fight, and I just want you to know I am in it with you. I just want you to know I see you and I'm proud of you. I just want you to know if you need any help, I'm here for you. I feel like we just forget to do that. We just forget to encourage each other. But a community that is obeying God together is going to be doing this for each other because we need help. There is never, ever in the Bible any conversation 
where there is a person and, and, it, and the category is it's just you and God. Never. It is not just you and God. It is us and God. God always calls us into his love and into his community of people. Always. And so, of course, our efforts to obey God, to follow him, to walk in the light as he is in the light is going to involve each other. We really need it. So I want to encourage you to be cultivating these sorts of things in your relationships and in this community. We really, really need it. And it's hard work. To do this sort of thing, the honesty that this, that this takes, the courage that this takes, the humility that this takes, is really hard work. You will mess this up for sure. You will end up hurting each other as you are trying to help each other. For sure. There's almost no way around it because it's the blind leading the blind, right? But I believe that a community that lives this out, this kind of communal obedience of accountability, of truth and love, of encouragement, I I believe this will actually lead to joy. Do you know why? Because it will be a community where people are not holding bitterness against other people over long amounts of time. It will be a a community where people want to build each other up. It will be a community where people keep short accounts and experience forgiveness and restoration. It will be a community where instead of gossip and talking behind people's back, there is truth and love. Doesn't that sound better? Doesn't that sound good? That's a community of joy. That's actually for our good. That's actually more fun than just doing what we want to get what we want. Obedience is communal. Secondly, obedience is uh, responsive. Uh, Paul says next that we, that we do all these things, this obeying as a community, without grumbling or disputing, without complaining or fighting. There's this part of uh, one of the Harry Potter books slash movies. I think it's Order of the Phoenix. It's the one where uh, Umbridge comes to Hogwarts. This, she's described as a toad-like woman. I don't know what that means. Sounds bad. And uh, Harry gets in trouble in her class the very first day because he is uh, espousing this uh, news that Cedric Diggory in the last book was killed by Lord Vol- by he who must not be named and uh, who has come back to power. And Umbridge refuses to admit that this is true. And so she has him, gives him detention. He goes to her office and she, makes him, she asks him to, to write lines, which is kind of old school punishment, right? We used to have to write lines on the board. And uh, she gives him this pad of paper and gives him this special magical quill. And so when he writes, he, instead of dipping the pen in ink, it actually cuts what he's writing, which is I must not tell lies, into the back of his hand. And then it magically whisks that blood and it uses that blood as the ink on the paper. And he has to just write. And she tells him to keep writing and he does it. He obeys until she tells him to stop. And he's sitting there and he's obeying, but he is filled. He is fuming with anger and hatred. And I think that sometimes when we consider obeying God, like doing what God and what God's word says, it's, it's a little bit like that. Like we have this picture that God is up in heaven with his arms crossed and a frown on his face and he's looking down at us and he's like, you better do what I say or else there's going to be consequences. And so at our best, it can look like, well, I'm just going to obey out of duty. Like, I, I'm not supposed to steal, so I, so I won't steal. Uh, and, and at our worst, we obey God or we struggle to obey God because we are filled with bitterness towards him because we think that he is the one that is keeping us from getting what we want. 
He is the one who's keeping us from having fun like everybody else. He is the one telling us we're not supposed to have this full life everyone around here seems to be enjoying. And so we're filled with bitterness and resentment and even anger towards God. And so what we have to remember as we obey is we are, we are obeying in response to who God is and to what he has done. And so I want to ask you tonight, do you remember that God is love? And that he has poured the fullness of his love into your heart? Do you remember that God delights in you? That he cares about you so much that he sent his son to take on the consequences of our sins and disobedience, death, out of love for us? Do you know that he sees us and he knows us, everything we've done, everything we've said, everything we've thought, every wicked motivation and imagination in our hearts that we've ever had, and he relentlessly extends to us patience and forgiveness and grace and love? Do do you remember that he so wants to be in relationship with us that he gives us his spirit with us all the time so that even right now in your heart with you in this moment, the Lord is here? That's who we obey. The good, good father who loves us perfectly with a love that will never fail, that will never give up, that will never surrender, that will never fade away. So we never obey just because our obedience is one of grateful thanksgiving where we look at how good he is to us and we say, thank you, of course I want to follow you. Now we don't feel like that emotionally all the time, do we? That actually takes, it actually takes really, really hard work. I want you to think for a second about the places where you are struggling to obey God. Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's with your sexuality. Maybe it's your self-control with alcohol. Maybe it's harshness of your words or your anxiety over the future, the way you're trying to control your life. I, I want you to think about the places you're, trying, you're struggling to, to obey God. The, the solution to those places where you're struggling is not to try harder. It is to remember that God is love and to come face to face with that love as often and as deeply as you can to drink deep of the Lord. That means that uh, if you are not spending regular time in God's word and in prayer and with the community of his people encouraging one another, you will be ill-equipped to resist temptation. You will be ill-equipped to choose lightness over darkness. The way that you are empowered to do this is when you are connected to God and his love for you. It is when you are abiding in Christ, which means the best thing you can do for your life in the places you want to obey is to seek Jesus. Because it is him that you are obeying. It is him that you are responding to. And he promises us, he promises us that when we seek him, we will find him. Ask and the door will be open to you. True obedience is joyful because it's a grateful response to God's love. And we'll actually be experiencing his love as we obey. Obedience is communal and it's responsive. And lastly tonight, uh, obedience is declarative. And by that I mean that, that our obedience, our decisions, our life says something as a community. It says something. It says something to the world. 
verse 15, we, we, we do all these things. We do them without grumbling. Here's why. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so obedience to God and his word actually has a direct correlation with your witness in the world as a Christian. It has a direct correlation to your witness in the world as a Christian. We have to take this very seriously because we're at risk here of being in trouble. And in fact, we're all in a little bit of trouble, aren't we? You're at risk at a place like WNL of, of saying that you believe in something and that you are following someone, Jesus, and then living your life as if it wasn't really true. You're, you're at risk of this. I am at risk of this. We are really struggling this. We say we follow Christ, but we also will make out with random girls. We say that Jesus is the most important thing to us, but we'll date a boy who's not a Christian. We say that we follow God and no one else, but we can't find peace and happiness until we have that 4.0 and that prestigious job that will impress everybody. We say that we have our happiness in Jesus, but we can't stop drinking four nights a week. Like, Do you know what non-Christians' biggest problem with Christians is? It has nothing to do with the offensiveness of the gospel, although that's a problem. It has nothing to do with the, is, is the Bible and the church credible anymore in the world, even though that's a problem. The biggest problem is Christians who say they believe in something and follow someone and then live as if it wasn't really true. It makes the gospel seem silly. This is why you've had, and I know you guys have done this, you've, you've had conversations with people where you're explaining your faith to them and how that makes you try to live a good life, and then it turns out they're also trying to give, live a good life, and you can't figure out what's different between you. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've had this conversation a hundred times, probably. This is, actually, this is actually a pretty big problem for us, and, and the reality is that um, it's true for us, right? It's true for me. It's true for you. Our actions, our words, our relationships, they don't, they don't proclaim the thing that we believe even on our best days and certainly not on our worst days. And so what this requires of us is to walk in grace, just like every other part of our lives. To walk in grace, to, to walk acknowledging between ourselves and the Lord, between ourselves and our community, between ourselves and people outside our community, between ourselves and non-Christians. That we follow God and we do not know how to do that. We do not have our lives together. And we are so grateful that he still loves us and forgives us. Part of, of, of obedience is embracing the reality that we walk by grace. Now, at, as we, I'm, I'm almost done here. As we talk about obedience, I, I imagine you've had one of a few reactions. Some of you may be thinking, this is kind of a downer. Like, can we talk about something a little more encouraging? Some of you are probably thinking, I'm so glad that you know, this person is listening to this because they really need to obey more. That's okay. I found that's all of us, right? We're not really thinking about how it's impacting us. Some of us are thinking, oh, Lord, please help me in these areas of my life. Some of us are maybe uh, thinking about things right now that we would rather not bring before the Lord, that we would rather not have our Christian friends know about because we've been walking in darkness, and so there's regret and shame and guilt and confusion. I, I don't know how it is hitting you, but I know that there is good news for you wherever you are. There is good news for you wherever you are because God is good and because he loves us. And that a part of obedience means that we don't have to be perfect or else 
Part of obedience means we have to be honest about who we are and about who God is. That we are broken, that we cannot figure this out, and that God still loves us. Jesus came, Jesus said, I have come for the sick, not for the well. We have a God who is in the business of redeeming, not people who have figured out about redeeming sinners. He's a friend to sinner. That's who Jesus is. And one of the most profound things that we do as Christians is that we repent when we mess up. And one of the things that we're actually going to do this together in just, in just a minute, my favorite part of church is actually the confession of sin. I know that's a little weird. That's my favorite part of going to church. Because a group of people standing up together or getting on their knees together and saying out loud that they have messed up does not happen in any other place in culture, period. In a public way like that. It doesn't happen anywhere else. But Christians walk by grace. And we are a community that is saying, we depend on God's love for us and we believe it is there despite what we have done. And that brings us joy. And so what we are going to declare as we try to obey is that we are broken, but God is good. He delights in us, that he loves us, that he's forgiven us in Jesus, that he promises that no matter what we do, he will never leave us or forsake us. That's what we declare when we're honest about our brokenness. As, as we finish up, I, I just want to say that I recognize that when we talk about obedience and we think about the whole spectrum of human life, you know, there are some areas where uh, it seems to be very clear what obedience is and what disobedience is. And then there's other areas where it's really confusing. And there's other areas where there's great disagreement on what that might look like. This is really confusing and challenging in some places, just like it's brutally honest and clear in, in other places. Uh, that's why um, I think that Justin Timberlake is, is almost tapped into something truth when he says, you're my mirror. Mirror staring back at me. You know, you know what that song is about? That song is about how uh, like looking at this other person like makes him really understand who he truly is. Uh, and if you are a Christian, God's word is your mirror. God's word is the thing that you look at to see who you truly are, to see where you truly are, to see who God truly is. God's word is your mirror. That's why Paul says in this passage that we hold fast to the words of life. We hold fast. We search the scriptures. When we have a question, we want to figure out our life, we know where to look. We look at the Bible, right? And so as an individual, as a community, there's a reason why as a group we read from this book every single week. It's because we don't understand who we really are until we look at this book. And we trust it because the one who we receive it from and who we respond to is good and cares about us and wants us to experience the fullness of joy. Well, we're going we're gonna to do something right now that um, uh, many of you do in, do in church every week. Uh, if you don't go to church, that you, you may not have done this in a while. But we're going to, uh, together, as a community, uh, confess.